So again, Father, we are uh, excited to be here. We're thankful that uh, we can we can come here. Thank you, Lord, for giving us uh, safety as we traveled uh, these treacherous roads. Um, to be here as a family. Lord, I pray for those who are most likely stuck at home right now. They're taking a snow day, as it were. Um, um, may you uh, uh, encourage them, as, even though they're not here. Uh, may they, uh, they're, they're here with us in spirit, Lord, and, and uh, we love them and we uh, encourage us, Lord, to, to, to find those individuals and just to see how they're doing, see if they need any help, Lord. And um, Again, we thank you. Uh, that uh, we can open up your word so freely and learn from it. So I ask the Holy Spirit that you would uh, bless this time, that you would uh, guide and direct my words and uh, open up our ears and our hearts to receive your word this morning, that we would be changed. It's all for your glory. It's all so that we can uh, become more and more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So we're going to go ahead and continue in kind of our little... Um, mini-series going through a few selections uh, in the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, or as we called it, Luke. Yeah, Luke. God says, I am your father. Um, But before we actually get to our past, we're actually going to continue where we left off uh, last week in chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 38, but before we get to there, I'd like to make, work our way up like we did last uh, week. So if you would, if you have your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. That's where we're going to go ahead and start. So God creates this space and he fills it with creation. Uh, just, um, just by simply speaking it into existence, poof, it's there. Out of nothing, he made a whole bo- a bunch of something. And everything he creates is good, 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 good. And he, he plants a garden and he puts Adam and Eve in that garden and he literally dwells among them. And at the, very, at the close of, of Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it says, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was not just good, it was very good. And then on the seventh day, he rested. He didn't, he, he didn't rest because he was, oh man, that was so exhausting. He wasn't tired at all. God's power is unlimited. The reason why he rested is because he was done. There was nothing else to be created. There was no, he didn't have to tweak like, oh, I made a, a platypus and that doesn't really look that interesting. Let me try to tweak that. You know, he didn't have to tweak anything, add anything. He was done. It was very, very good. God's dwelling among his people. It is very good. It is a perfect creation. And then we get to chapter three and Satan, who's described here as the serpent. Revelation refers to say, uh, the serpent as Satan, the enemy of God and his people. He comes in and he approaches uh, Adam and Eve. He, he approaches the, the woman and he says, you know, did God actually say you should not eat from that particular tree in the garden? And Eve responded, well, yeah, we, we can't eat from it. We can't even touch it because if we do, we're going to die. And the serpent says, well, you're not going to die. In other words, God lied to you. God lied to you. God knows that if you, if you eat from that fruit, you'll be just like him. In other words, God's holding out on you. You can't trust him. He's not that good. 
And so what ended up happening is Adam and Eve decided to uh, eat sin, disobey God, and they ate from the, 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 the fruit from the tree that they were not supposed to. No one forced them. The serpent didn't hold them at gunpoint and said, eat this fruit. They willingly chose to disobey God. And when, when they did that, it messed things up. And, and, and so here, uh, God, uh, in chapter 3, he's, he's addressing uh, Adam and Eve because of their sin. I mean, he, we, we talked about that. God is holy and he is just. He has to address sin. He can't simply pretend it's not there. He can't scoop it under the rug and say, well, I'll give you a second chance. You know, you just try a little bit harder. No, God is just. And the, that word just or justice has been kind of... It's been getting a kind of a twisted understanding nowadays with social justice and critical race theory and, and, and whatnot. Um, the, the idea of, biblically speaking, justice is what is right, making something wrong right. But the way um, our world defines it, it's right by our own standards. It's right by what we consider is right. It's, and, and, but biblically, it's based off of God's standards. It's what he determines is right. That is uh, just. And so God is a just God. And so he is just acting on who he is, his very nature. And he addresses the man and the woman. He says, the man, you know, your work, which is supposed to be a blessing to you, is now going to be frustrated because now it's going to produce thorns and thistles. He goes to the woman and says, you know, you were supposed to be fruitful and multiply. That's a an amazing blessed thing. And now I'm going to increase your pain in, in giving, in giving birth. And eventually Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden into a world that is now full of disease and sickness and death and evil. And it's, it's tragic, but even in the midst of this tragedy, God gives hope. And so we get to chapter three, verse 15 here, God is addressing the serpent. The enemy says, I will make enemies of you and the woman, or literally, I will put enmity between you and the woman. There's going to be a conflict there. And of your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Basically, God's saying one day someone's going to come, a descendant an off, from the offspring of a woman, someone's going to come. And though you are going to inflict a wound on him, bruising his heel, he's going to crush your head. He's going to defeat you. This is what theologians would call the proto-eungelion. It's the, the first glimpse of the gospel, the first glimpse of the good news of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he is going to bring. And so then as we read, we're wondering, okay, how is this going to actually take take place? How is God going to accomplish all of this? And eventually God finds a, an older couple, Abr um, Abram and Sarai, and he says, hey, I'm going to give you a child, and that child is going to basically birth an entire nation, and I'm going to bless that nation, and that nation's going to be, in turn, a blessing to the rest of the world. And they laugh because they're like, well, we're really old. We've been trying to have a kid. We haven't been able to have a kid, and now we're way beyond the years of having a kid. And God's like, is it too hard for me to do something like this? And so God gives them a son, and God's promise is fulfilled. Eventually, it becomes an entire nation. God sets them up in their own land, and and he uh, establishes kings. And, and one of the kings uh, is uh, King David, a man after God's own heart. He was not perfect. And if you, uh, you want to know just how unperfect he was, just read his accounts. Uh, a murderer, lustful man, adulterer, just a whole bunch of things. But uh, he tried to, you know, he, he, he did believe God and he desired to follow God, which is why he was a man after God's own heart. But let's go to um, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
2 Samuel chapter 7. So here King David has a desire to build the temple. I mean, he's, he's in his nice castle and he looks down at, to where the Ark of the Covenant is. The Ark is where the, the, the place where God's presence dwells among the people. It's residing in this mobile tent called a tabernacle and he desires to build a temple, but God's uh, answer and he, he speaks to, to, to David uh, through the prophet uh, Nathan is, is no. And so that would have been uh, kind of, uh, you know, bummer news there, but uh, God is, is going to give him some good news here. And so we, we pick it up, uh, chapter 7, uh, verse 8 um, of Second Samuel. Now then, this is what you, uh, Nathan, or Nathan, um, ah, what is it? Nathan, yes. Th- now this is what you, Nathan, shall say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I myself took you, David, from the pasture from following the sheep to be the leader over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have eliminated all your enemies from you. I will also make a great name for you, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. So basically, you're not going to be able to make a temple for me, but I'm going to make your name great. People are going to be speaking about who you are, your reputation. And I will establish my place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they may not live in their own place, Uh, so that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will malicious people oppress them anymore as previously. Uh, Even from the day that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. So it's like, you're not gonna make me a temple. You're not gonna make me a house, David. I'm gonna make you a house. And the idea of a house is not an actual physical structure. It's the idea of lineage, a, a, a line of descendants. In fact, it's gonna be a lineage of kings. So I'm gonna make a house for you. Uh, when your days are finished and you lie down with your fathers, when you pass away, David, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come from you and I will establish his kingdom. Eventually Solomon is going to come and this is going to refer to him. He, verse 13, shall build a house for my name. That's what Solomon actually did. And I will establish the throne. That's the idea of his rule uh, of, of his kingdom forever. Uh, skip down to, to verse uh, 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. There's no footnotes there. Forever means forever. The ages of the ages. So um, skip over to uh, Isaiah, book of Isaiah. Yes. That's right. Gold star. Isaiah chapter 7. So as uh, the prophets begin um, uh, God giving them words uh, to, to, to tell the, the, the people, this idea that uh, not only is, is the kingdom, this, this lineage going to continue on, but that one day God's going to send someone, uh, a, a, an anointed one, the Messiah, this king who's going to rule over Israel and in, in extension even rule over the entire world. And we've come to Isaiah chapter 7, uh, verse 14. This is a very familiar passage. Now, we don't have any biblical evidence um, or even historical evidence that uh, the the Jews prior to the birth of Jesus or even during the birth of Jesus, the time of Jesus, uh, saw this particular passage as referring to the birth of Jesus. Uh, Matthew, um, who, when he's writing his gospel, refers to this particular passage and, and points to Jesus as its fulfillment. And so in uh, Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14 says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign 
Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. In Matthew's gospel, he, he translates that. It means God with us, or God is with us. Skip over to uh, chapter 9 of Isaiah, chapter 9. And here, he's going to be describing the one who is to come, the Prince of Peace, beginning at uh, verse uh, 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You will multiply the nations. You will increase their joy. They will rejoice in your presence as with the joy of harvest, as people rejoice when they divide the spoils. For you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors as the battle of um, Midian. Go ahead and skip down to uh, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Go to the next book over, book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23. Again, here's another prophecy of the coming Messiah. Jeremiah chapter 23, starting at verse five. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, Yahweh, our righteousness. Now go over to Daniel, book of Daniel. Past Ezekiel, there's Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Here, Daniel is receiving a vision. Very popular passage, the, son, the vision of the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, starting at verse 13. Daniel chapter 7, starting at verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, to God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom, so that all the peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion, his rule, is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So amazing passages of who this coming Messiah, and eventually we get to the Italian uh, prophet Malachi or Malachi, um, and 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 you know a promise that someone's going to come and prepare the way of the Lord, and then after that, four hundred years of nothing, four hundred years of silence. God is not raising up a, a, a new. Uh, prophets. He's not speaking his word to the people. Uh, he's not uh, showing miraculous signs, nothing. The people are thinking what, what, what God's doing. God's just silent. Even though it seems that way, God is still at work and God is still waiting for the proper time. And then when we get to the book of Luke, that's when the silence breaks. And so let's go now to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1. 
Luke chapter 1. So in Luke chapter 1, um, we are introduced, uh, starting at verse 5, uh, an account, it's, it's regarding a guy named Zachariah, a couple actually, Zacharias and Elizabeth. And Zacharias is a priest. And the priests were uh, divided into 24 divisions. At, it is reported during this time that there are about or upwards to 18,000 priests serving. And each of those divisions had at least you know, a little over 750 uh, priests serving in, in each division. And Zacharias was part of the eighth division of uh, Abijah. And it was uh, required that these divisions, each of these divisions would uh, twice a year uh, go uh, to Jerusalem and serve at the temple for a week. And while they were there, they would cast lots uh, and whoever named the lot would, uh, f- um, the lot would land on, they had the privilege, that priest had the privilege and honor of going into the holy place, the temple, and uh, offering incense onto the, the altar, uh, de- uh, saying a prayer on behalf of Israel, then coming out of the temple and declaring the, the the blessing of Aaron, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And uh, they were done serving that probably for the rest of their life. They would never get a chance to do that ever again. And so they were considered a very, a blessed man. And so uh, uh, Zacharias, uh, he's, he's married to this girl named Elizabeth and Elizabeth comes from a, a priestly line. And so in the first century, if you were a priest and you married someone from a priestly line, you were double blessed. So Zacharias comes, it's, it's his time to go to the, the temple. The lot is cast and it falls on his name. Now he has the privilege and honor. It's almost like winning the lottery. God's at work here though. And he goes into the temple. He puts the incense onto the altar. He's probably in the midst of his prayer and all of a sudden an angel appears and no doubt, it, it, understandably, it, it, it scares him. He's wondering what's going on. And the angel basically tells him, you know, you're, you're, God has heard your prayers. In other words, God has, has heeded your prayers. He's, he's listened carefully to your prayers, and now he is responding. And he says, you will have a son. And that's incredible. Because up to this point, they have not been able to have any children. And you now they're at the advanced years where that's not even a possibility. And now they're hearing that they're going to have a son. But it's not just going to be any old son. This son, this boy to be born is going to fulfill what the prophet uh, Malachi talked about. The, he's going to be the one to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare the way of the coming Messiah. This is an amazing uh, uh, position for this baby, for this, this, this son. He's going to be the one to announce, you know, the, the, after all these years of, of silence, God is, is actually acting. The, the, all the promises that God had, had, uh, uh, had made are now coming to uh, fulfillment. And so uh, Zacharias uh, uh, doesn't believe right away. He says, you know, how will I know this? How will I know this? How will, you know, basically I, I, I need a sign. I need you to give me a sign to, to prove that what you're saying is actually going to happen. And so uh, the angel says, well, I'm Gabriel, and I continually stand in the presence of the Lord. <laughs> okay, <laughs> boom, right there. Um, and then he says, uh, and, and this will be a sign, you will, you will be silent and unable to speak. In some translations, it says, you will be dumb. So there you go, because you failed to believe. You didn't believe me, that's what's going to happen. You're going to be silent and unable to speak until all these things are fulfilled. 
And sure enough, that's what happens. He comes out of the temple, and he's trying to sign and make gestures and let the people know that I can't speak. The people realize, oh, you must have seen a vision. And eventually, uh, Zacharias con- completes his, his work at the temple. They go back home. Elizabeth gets uh, uh, conceives and is now pregnant, and she spends the first five months just by herself. You know, in solitude, probably obviously with Zacharias right there, but not going out and, and, and proclaiming the news. She's just saying, in this way, Lord, you have dealt with me and looked upon me with favor, in verse 25, to take away my disgrace among men. Because in those days, having a child was the equivalent of God's favor being upon your life. And if you did not have a child, God's favor was not on your life. And so there was this stigma attached to it if you, didn't, if you couldn't have a kid. And there was some shame. And here, uh, Elizabeth is talking about this disgrace that she's been dealing with for years and years and years. And she's like, thank you, Lord. So she's celebrating. She's, she's celebrating for five months. And then, then we get to uh, verse 26. And it says, now in the sixth month, that doesn't mean um, the sixth month of the year, okay? This is actually, this account of Mary being visited by Gabriel is actually tied to, connected uh, to the, this, this account of Zacharias and Elizabeth. They, 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 they follow each other. And so uh, we leave Elizabeth, the, the account of Elizabeth on her fifth month. And now it says now in the sixth month of her pregnancy, the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee. Galilee, Galilee was this region located uh, to the north of Samaria and um, uh, Jude- well, in this in this region, Samaria, Judea, and uh, um, it was a, a place that uh, a number of Gentiles uh, inhabited. They lived there, and also a number of Jews lived there. And uh, because of that, uh, so many Jews elsewhere kind of looked at Galilee as not a very great place to live because of the Gentile influence. In fact, they would actually view some of the Jews who lived there as, uh, you know, compromised Jews because of, again, they were, you know, they would accuse them of not having a kosher kitchen and, 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 and whatnot. It's basically the equivalent of like, why would you live there? Like, why would you live in Los Angeles? Like, why would you live in Seattle? Why would you live in Chicago? That kind of idea. Like, why? It's so nasty over there. And in this region of Galilee, there was a town um, called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a, 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 a really small town, very insignificant. In fact, uh, we've, we've only uncovered one uh, natural spring in Nazareth. And if, that's the, if that was the only uh, well that was in the city, it could only uh, support probably about a little over 100 individuals in that city. So we're talking really small city. What's fascinating is up until 1960, we had no archaeological records that Nazareth even existed. Like we had nothing. I mean, the, 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 the rabbinical writings didn't mention Nazareth. The Talmud doesn't re- reference uh, Nazareth. Uh, uh, Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, doesn't reference uh, Nazareth. Why? Because who cares? It's this little town. I mean, we probably, we've gone through those towns, right? You're on, if you've ever been on a long road trip, you find, find that little town. It's just, you know, there's like an old dog almost dying on the ground, a guy on a little rocking chair, whatever, one gas station, you stop, you get gas, overpriced gas, maybe go in, maybe use the restroom, get some snacks, get back in your car and get out of there. One of those cities, that was Nazareth. 
In fact, in, 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 in John, uh, Andrew, one of the disciples of Jesus, goes to uh, another, disciple, another guy and, and says, you know, we've, we found the Messiah and here he is, he's from Nazareth. And his response was, can anything good come from Nazareth? Like that's, that's the kind of town it was. It was this, it was literally nowhere. It was nowhere. And, and um, <laughs> some of you may be thinking equivalent to like here in Lapine. You know, because it's, we're such a small, in fact, I would say actually Nazareth is probably even smaller than Lapine because it's kind of deceiving. You go on the 97 and you think that's it, but then the community kind of extends elsewhere. But, uh, you know, I had no idea that this city even existed, you know, until I actually came here. I didn't know that anything about Gilcrest or Crescent. When I go, when you look on one of those uh, maps of Oregon, just a general map, it's not very detailed. You'll see little spots on there. Oh, here's Bend, here's Salem, here's Eugene, Portland, and everything. Where's Lapine? They didn't put Lapine in there. Why? Because who cares? <laughs> it's not that significant. People, it was funny, I was, uh, you know, prior to moving up here, uh, I read an old article that was written regarding Lapine, and it was, you know, really like, Pride, proud and said, you know, we offer fishing and hiking and all this amazing stuff. And it's like, you don't offer that. It's already there. Like, you didn't make the river. You didn't make the lakes, you know. That was God thing, you know. You don't offer anything. So it's like, again, here's Nazareth in the middle, nowhere. Gabriel is sent there. It says, verse 27, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David and the virgin's name was Mary. Now in those days, engaged or the idea of being betrothed or promised in marriage uh, could happen as early as 12 years old to as late as 15 years old. So you got to really wrap your mind around that. 12 years old to about 15 years old. Mary was probably junior high, high schooler at the time. You know, most of the time when we see Mary depicted in our nativity stories or even in Catholic, you know, art, it's like Mary looks like a mid-30s woman dressed all in nice clothes with a golden crown, golden light behind her, a little halo, carrying little baby Jesus, looks like a 40-year-old man with a little, uh, you know, uh, halo around him. That's not, that's not Mary. Biblically speaking, she's a young girl, 12 to 15 years old. And she's living in this podunk town called Nazareth. She's not, a, 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 doesn't come from any affluent family. I mean, we don't even know any of her background other than later on, she's a relative of Elizabeth. But she comes from this really tiny community, very simple community, not wealthy. She's probably wearing normal clothes and, 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 and all that. She's no golden halo around her or anything. She's this young woman who's engaged, betrothed to this young man, Joseph. What would happen is basically um, the marriages would be arranged and the, two, the fathers of the, the bride and the groom would meet together and they would agree on a bridal price because the father of the bride would be losing a family member and then the father of the groom would be gaining a family member. So they would agree on a bridal price. And once that was agreed upon, they were considered, uh, basically they were considered marriage, married. And we could only separate that, that engagement was either one of them died or they wrote a certificate of divorce. And so they were considered married, but they didn't uh, live together. They weren't physically intimate with each other until about 12 or 18 months 
after the engagement where they would have the official ceremony um, and then they would you know, live, live, live together. During that 12 and 18 month period, um, the, the young lady would probably be with her mother learning how to run a household and all those kind of duties. And then the, 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 the groom, the, the husband to be would uh, spend time with the father adding on an addition to the house or building a place on the property. That's where he and his wife will live. And I find, so I find it very fascinating. And Jesus tells his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. It's almost using that bridal language. But uh, so that, that's what's happening. The, the angel visits, goes to Galilee, goes to this small nowheresville uh, uh, city to a nobody named Mary, who's engaged to be uh, married. That's probably during that 12 to 18 month period. The angel comes in verse 28 and, and coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one. The word uh, greetings is Cairo. This is a, a word that we saw in the book of Philippians. Paul uses it as a command, but uh, in, in that day, it was also used as a, a, a formal kind of formal greeting there. It, it means to, to, to rejoice, to be glad, to celebrate. So here the angel, hey, be glad. Rejoice, celebrate, favored one. This is another word uh, built off of the root word for grace, kairitao. It means to, to be the recipient of grace, to be the recipient, to be shown kindness. Um, some um, teachings, particularly Catholicism, will say that Mary is full of grace, which is a, a really bad rendering here of this passage because when you say that Mary was full of grace it almost gives the uh, idea that she has she became uh, a source of grace for others that she can now bestow grace because she's full of grace she can bestow the grace and that's kind of how the the teaching goes that's not what this word means this is favor God is giving to this young woman that she and she, she didn't deserve it there's nothing in Mary's life to deserve this kind of favor in her. That's what grace is. It's undeserved, it's unmerited grace and favor in her life. She's the recipient. She's not the source of grace. She is a recipient of God's favor. So he says, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Verse 29. But she was very perplexed at this statement. She, it was basically the, to be brought in the state of confusion, to be alarmed or troubled. Well, that makes sense, right? It's just kind of the similar idea with, with Zacharias. Um, and, and, and she kept pondering what kind of salutation, what kind of greeting this was. She literally was debating internally, thinking carefully, what is this all about? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Uh, continuing on to verse 30. And the angel said to her, it's what they teach angels in angel school. Don't be afraid. Because you see that a lot. Every time an angel comes, do not be afraid. That's angel number 101. That's right. That's what you pay the big bucks to, to hear. Um, do not be afraid, Mary. Why? For you have found favor with God. He's again repeating the fact you have, you have um, uh, uh, God has bestowed this, this favor, this kindness upon you. Oh, well, because Mary was a godly woman. I'm pretty sure there was other godly women in, in that area because she came from an affluent family. No, because she uh, was ultimately going to respond in a good way. No, God just is a good God and he's just granting Mary favor, kindness. And so the angel continues, verse 31, and behold, listen, 
you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him or he, you shall call him by the name Jesus and he will be great. The Greek word there for great is megas. You can think of megaphone. Uh, it, it, it can refer to something that's physically great, physically large, but that's not what the angel's saying. The angel's not saying, the Lord be with you. You're gonna have a whopper of a baby. That's not what he's saying. Like, oh, good Lord, good, good luck with that, pushing that one out. Um, that's not what he's getting at. Megas also can uh, refer to your status, to your position, uh, your, your significance, importance. He will, this son that's going to be, to be born, this Jesus is going to be great. He's going to be important. He's going to be significant. And he will be called the son of the most high, literally the son of the highest, the loftiest. It's an Old Testament expression to refer to God. God is above all other gods. God is superior to all other authorities and rulers in all of creation. He is the son of the most high. He is the, supreme, the son of the most supreme. And the Lord, well, that, 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 that title, that phrase, the son of the most high, almost reminds me of some of the, the passages we just read in the Old Testament. You know, even uh, uh, Isaiah 9, he shall be called, you know, um, wonderful counselor, the mighty God. He says, and the Lord will give him the throne. This idea of, of, of the throne, it could refer to the, the physical throne that a king would sit on, but most of the time it referred to authority, to rule. And the Lord will give him, will bestow upon this Jesus the rule, the authority, the throne of his father, David. That's a, that's a fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7, the promise that God gave to King David. And he will reign, literally he will rule as king over the house of Jacob forever. That term, that, that phrase house of Jacob um, basically is, a, is another way of describing the house of Israel. And if you want to write down these passages, you can kind of get an example of that. Exodus 19 verse 3 and Isaiah chapter 48 verse 1, you'll see the house of Jacob is actually referring to the house uh, of Israel. So he will reign over the house of, 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 of Jacob forever and his kingdom, his rule, his dominion will have no end. It will not come to a conclusion, a close, a termination. Again, this is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 9 and Daniel chapter 7. Verse 34, but Mary said to the angel, how can this be? How is this going to happen since I am a virgin? Literally, I have not intimately known a man. Verse 35, the angel responded, replied and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And it's the, the, the idea there, the, the language kind of, you see that language in, in, in Exodus and Psalms and other passages in the Old Testament referring to, to God's presence, you know, he, him, him overshadowing his people, protecting his people, shielding his people, just him, him filling the, 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 the tabernacle, him filling the temple. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, because of the Holy Spirit's work, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now, there is some discussion as to how to translate that, that, uh, the end of that sentence. For this reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now, this in the NASB is one translation, a way of, of, of translating it. Uh, the word child is actually a verb, means to be brought forth or to literally be born. So this is referring to the, the, the one who is being born. That's what it's referring to. And so the question goes, well, what about holy? 
and is is holy uh, modifying the one to be born or is it the one being born to be called holy the son of god that's kind of where the discussion goes and so again yes you can translate the way it is or you can say for this reason because of the work of the holy spirit this one being born shall be called holy the son of god which would definitely fit uh, with uh, Luke chapter 2. Go there. Luke chapter 2, um, after Jesus is born, uh, according to the law of Moses, uh, they were to go present uh, their firstborn to the temple. And so beginning at verse uh, 21 of chapter 2, uh, just to get some context here. And when eight, th- when eight days were completed so that it was time for his circumcision, he... Uh, was also named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now that word holy could mean pure, undefiled like the idea of righteous no sin is in you and and that is for sure the truth when it comes to the to to god to jesus he was perfect there was no defilement in him there was no sin in his life but he was the 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 word also holy could mean to be set apart to be dedicated to god to be uh, set apart to be used by god in a very specific way and that is definitely true Jesus was to be used by God the Father in a very, very special, significant uh, way. So he's to be called holy, the son of God. Verse 36, and behold, even your relative Elizabeth. Now, some translations will say cousin. That word for relative is just a generic word. So it could be cousin, it could be aunt, it could be, it's just, there's a relation there. We don't really know what it is, but they're related somehow. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she, who was called barren, in, basically incapable of having children, is now in her sixth month. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. And this is something that Luke brings up again and again and again, that all the, all the promises that God made are now being fulfilled, that he's making good on all of those promises, that this, this thing that he's doing with Jesus is really something that he started way back in Genesis chapter three. He's being just faithful to his word, faithful to his prom- promise, and there's nothing, no one that can stop it, even a virgin womb from get, let, accomplishing it. He's like, I'm going above and beyond that. It, it doesn't make sense, but God's gonna do it. Nothing is impossible for God. And again, we, we looked at uh, in the beginning of, of Luke um, verses one through four, which is kind of the prologue. Uh, Luke is, is writing uh, to this guy named Theophilus. You know, he's, he, probably Theophilus was a, a guy, a, a man of, of uh, high rank. Maybe he was a politician. We don't really know. We don't have any indication who he was. Uh, but it's very possible that he commissioned Luke to write this account. And we have a lot of uh, in, uh, uh, information that uh, uh, other historians like Josephus uh, were commissioned by other people of, of high uh, rank uh, to 
put together historical accounts because it took a lot of time, took a lot of resources, and these individuals would basically pay for them to do it. And, and basically, uh, Paul, I mean, Luke is saying, you know, I'm, I'm writing this so, so that in verse 4 of chapter 1, he says, so that you, Theophilus, may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. That we're, the, the exact truth is, is just one Greek word made up of two uh, words that literally mean to not trip up. So basically saying, I'm, I'm writing this. I took time because uh, Luke wasn't an eyewitness. And so he probably traveled to all these different places. He's writing this account about 30 years, probably after Jesus has risen from the dead. So many of the people who witnessed Jesus, his mother included, are probably still alive. And he's, he's going to visit these people. He says, I've thoroughly investigated to its exactness. And I wanted to do this so that you, Theophilus, will know deep in your bones without beyond a shadow of a doubt that these things that you've learned about Jesus are true. Everything that you've heard, even from the old Hebrew scriptures, the promises, they have been fulfilled because nothing is impossible for God, even a virgin womb. Nothing's gonna stop him from bringing about his promises. I love her response, verse 38. And Mary said, behold, the bond, serv- be the bond slave of the Lord. This is, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a female slave of the Lord. May it be done to me. And this is, this is her desire. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, there are a couple of things with this passage. The first one, and I mentioned it earlier, this, this account is connected to the previous account of uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth. And that's on purpose because what, what Luke is doing is he's kind of forming a compare and contrast. Compare and contrast. Here you have two individuals who get visited by Gabriel. The, the contexts are different. The situation is different, but it's still referring to, it's regarding the Messiah, the coming Messiah. And, and, and so, so the, the situation, the context is a little bit different. And also the, the, the descriptions, the details are, are different. And even the responses are a little bit different. And so uh, it, the angel comes to uh, Zechariah and says, uh, you know, uh, you're going you're gonna to have a son and he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. Gabriel goes to Mary and says, you're going to have a son and he's going to be great in and of himself. Zachariah, Gabriel goes to Zechariah. Uh, well, later on, actually, in, in, in chapter one, uh, John the Baptist is referred to uh, as the prophet of the Most High. For Mary, uh, the, the angel Gabriel tells Mary that uh, your son will be the son of the Most High. Zechariah goes, uh, the angel goes, tells Zechariah that this, this son is going to be the one to prepare the way for the Lord, to prepare the way for the, the Messiah, the king that we've been waiting for. The Gabriel, t- Gabriel tells Mary that the son you're going to have is that Messiah, is that king. The response of, of Zechariah is, how will I know this is going to happen? Like, I, I need you to give me a sign so that I know that this is going to actually, you know, as proof. I need a sign to, as proof. And so the angel's, okay, well, you're going to be dumb until all this stuff uh, takes place. Mary's response is, how can this be? She's not asking for a sign. 
because she's assuming it's going to happen, but she wants an explanation how. See, Zacharias was like, give me a sign to prove it. Mary's like, no, just give me an explanation. I just need an explanation. How is this going to happen? Well, the Holy Spirit's going to be involved and it's going to be a God thing. It's going to be a miraculous thing. Later on, Mary's response is, I'm a slave to the Lord. May it be to me. May it be done to me. May it come to, ha- to, to ha- may it happen to me according to your word. So a couple of things that with, with in this idea of, of, of contrast is that the first thing we, we recognize is Jesus is greater. You know, not to say that in minimize John wasn't a significant because John was, again, a fulfillment of God's promises. He was the forerunner to the Messiah. He was preparing the way for the Messiah. But Jesus is far more greater than John. He's great. You know, again, John is going to be great in the sight of the Lord. Jesus is going to be great in and of himself. In his very nature, he's going to be great. You know, John's going to be the, the prophet of the Most High. Jesus is the son of the Most High. He's the son of God. Jesus is greater. The other thing that we see from this compa- uh, comparison is in regards to God's salvation, that God's salvation is offered to all people. In, in, the, in, in the first century, in Jesus' day, you know, when you, when you think of, of Zechariah, Zechariah was a priest. Okay, that's, that's good. She, he married a, a wife from a priestly lineage. Oh, she, he's double blessed. He's in Jerusalem, significant city. He's serving in the temple. Oh, that's, that's good. And he receives a, 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 a visit from an angel. The idea was, well, that would, that's to be expected. Of course that would happen. That's not surprising. He's a, he's a godly man because it talks about he's, he's both, both he and, 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 and Elizabeth are uh, blameless and righteous or blameless uh, and righteous before the Lord. So, so of course that would happen. Of course the angel would come to them. Priests in the temple serving God, get a message from God. No surprise there. In this account, you have God sending an angel to Nowheresville, to a nobody. Galilee? Ugh. Nazareth? Are you kidding me? Who's this Mary anyways? She doesn't come from any affluent family at all. What's going on here? And this is something that Luke brings up again and again and again, that salvation is not offered to the affluent. It's not only offered to the educated. It's not only offered to those who are praised in society, who have all the wealth of the world. Salvation is offered to everybody, including nobodies from nowhere. I mean, that's when we're, we're going to, on, on, on Christmas Eve, we're going to read the account in chapter two when the angels come to the, to the shepherds and said, behold, we bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, the whole world. Does it say good news of great joy for those who are affluent, for those who do good things, for those who are impressive by the world's standards? No. It's for everybody, including the nobodies from nowhere, the people who, who, who you wouldn't even expect to receive the favor of the Lord, like Mary. Individuals you think are completely hopeless, those are the ones the Messiah came to live and die for. 
as well as those who are important as well. Salvation is offered for everybody. Those who are somebodies and those who are nobodies. The second thing that I, I, I see from this passage is just the description of Jesus. Now, when, when, when the angel is talking to Mary and saying, this is who Jesus, Jesus is going to be, he's using future tense. Makes sense because Jesus hasn't been born yet. So he's going to be great. He's going to be called the son of the most high. He's going to be given the throne of David and, and so on and so forth. When we read this passage, we don't read it in a future tense. We, we don't understand it as a future tense, nor do we understand it as a past tense. Meaning we don't say, oh, he, he, he was great. He was the son of the most high. Oh, he was the king. No, he is. He is. Nothing's changed with Jesus. So it says when he will be great, Jesus is still great. He's still important. He's still significant. He will be called the son of the most high. He's still the son of the most high. He will be given the throne of his father, David. He will rule and reign. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And one day he's going to come and fully establish his kingdom on a renewed earth. And it's going to last forever and ever and ever. It's never going to come to an end. That's who Jesus still is. Now and forevermore. And if that's the case, if Jesus is, what is our response? Well, for those of you who are not followers of Christ, one word comes to my mind, submit. If you are not follower of Christ, and if this is true, Jesus right now is great. He is superior. He is the son of the most high. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords, the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end, our savior, the creator God, the one who is even sustaining all of creation. If that's really who he is, we need to submit. We need to surrender our lives to Christ. Recognize that we are not the masters of our own destiny, that he is the master of everything. Submit to him. He is to be our Lord because the truth is all of us, our days are numbered. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we are going to stand before this great son of the most high. And we are going to have to give an account for the way we live. Are we going to stand before him as one of his own, as one of his children, part of his household, part of his church? Are we going to stand before him as his enemy? There's no in-between. There's no, oh, well, I'll start in the in-between. I'll work my way up. No, you're either in Christ or you're still in your sins. You're either in his family or you're an enemy of the Lord. So this is true of Jesus now, and it is true. If you don't know Jesus, my encouragement is that you would submit your life to him, surrender your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. For those who are followers of Christ, the word that comes to mind is devotion or just simply follow. I mean, look at the, the, again, verse 38 Mary's response, the bond slave of the Lord. Her identity, she's basically attaching, that's my identity. I am a slave to the Lord. In light of who he is, what he's doing, what he's going to do, I am a slave of the Lord. Can we say that? Can we honestly say that? I'm a slave to the Lord. Paul brought, used that phrase all the time. I'm a servant, I'm a slave to the Lord. 
He even used, went so far as to say, I'm a prisoner of the Lord, like I'm chained to Christ. He's the one, the, the master, the one over me. Are we devoted to him that way? Now, if you've ever heard the phrase, um, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Have you ever heard that? Depending on how you define it. Because for most people, when they see, they hear the, the safest place you could be is the center of God's will, they say the most convenient, most comfortable place to be is in the center of God's will. If you are following, if you are in God's will, things are going to go good for you. You're going to have joy. You're going to have every, you know, all those problems are going to be gone. And, and, and churches will, pro, like, churches are selling this. Like they're selling a product. Like if you join now, we'll offer eternity. You know, it's kind of like that kind of idea. You want to be in God's will because when you are in God's will, you experience peace and prosperity in your life. Here, Mary is saying her desire is to be at the center of God's will. May it be done to me according to your word. I want to be in the center of God's will. What she was asking for cost her dearly because now she's going to be pregnant during an engagement period and there's going to be a whole bunch of scandal. A whole bunch of scandal, a whole bunch of disgrace. It's very interesting because there's a... Um, some rabbinical writings are 200 years after the life of Jesus. So Mary's been dead and gone for many years, 200 years, and they're still shaming Mary. They, 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 one, one account uh, describes Mary as this prostitute who had an affair with a Roman soldier to give birth to Jesus. 200 years after, they're still writing about uh, Mary that way. The slander, the disgrace, she experienced that throughout her life. On top of that, in, in chapter two, when they're presenting Jesus at the temple, there's this guy named Simeon. He, he was told by God that before he died, he would actually see the, the, the promised Messiah. And so he's there and he sees the Messiah, put, you know, holds the baby in his hands and, and he prophesies regarding uh, uh, the Jesus. And he looks at Mary and says, and a sword will pierce through your soul. Because Mary was going to see her son be ridiculed, be attached to this uh, a, a title called a mamzer. It was basically a, a, a phrase to describe children who are born illegitimate. We have a more derogatory word now that begins with the letter B. And that followed Jesus throughout his entire life. Mary would have to experience that, see that. Not only that, she would actually see her son be brutalized and nailed onto a cross. A sword will pierce your soul. So that phrase, oh, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will, again, depends on how you define it. If you define safety as in assurance that you are living a life pleasing to God, then yeah. If you're talking about comfort and easy, a life that's easy and always good and raindrops and roses and whatever. Look at just the life of Mary. Look at the life of the disciples. But again, if Jesus is who he says he, who, who the angel describes him, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. If Jesus is great, and he is, if he's the son of the most high, if he's the king of kings and lord of the lords, creator God, wonderful counselor, 
it's all worth it. So as followers of Christ, our response should be that of devotion. Follow him. May it be to me, Lord, according to your word. Let's go ahead and pray. So Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. There's a lot going on in this little passage. It's a passage, Lord, for many of us who've grown up in church, we've gone through it so many times. We can maybe even recite half of it by memory. And yet, Lord, there's a a significance that tends to get glossed over amid the lights, the music, the desserts, the presents. Lord, we we want to to see your word the way, um, uh, we want to understand your word the way you want us to understand it. We want to see Jesus the way he really is, not as this little pudgy baby in a manger. Lord, that baby grew up to be the savior of mankind. And Lord, he is ruling and reigning right now. And he's coming again. Hallelujah for that. Lord, for those who who are here who have not uh, made a decision to submit to this Jesus, may they do so today. May they not wait another moment because the truth is, Lord, that road out there is slick. Lord, be with us if we go down 97 today. Our life is a vapor. We'll stand before the awesome King. May it be a meeting of joy, not of fear, terror. Lord, for us who are followers of Jesus, may we follow Jesus. May we pick up our cross daily, die to our own dreams, die to our own self, die to our own wishes, our own comfort, control, convenience. May we lay it all aside to follow you completely. Father, it's very, it's, it's humbling to hear Jesus' words. It says, if you cannot hate your father, mother, brothers, sisters, you, you cannot be my disciple. The idea of hate is the idea of to love less. How many of us love our families and friends, which are good blessings in our lives, but we love them more than you? That's not what you're looking for. May we be the disciples that you want completely 100% sold out to you. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As uh